Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. The opening line of the Gospel of Mark is an incredible claim. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right off the bat, in the first sentence, Mark is identifying Jesus as the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, meaning anointed one. Jesus, Mark is saying, is the one who was promised to come throughout the entire Old Testament, the one who would be anointed, set apart to rescue God's people from Satan and the curse of the fall. Jesus is the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent. He is the promised son of Abraham, the son of David who would be king forever. And this Jesus is also the son of God. Right away, he is identified by titles. And then he is characterized with several fast-paced vignettes. In the first, Jesus was baptized by John and the heavens were torn up and the spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This service was his anointing and in it, the Trinity was present, the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and Jesus being set apart for ministry. In the next vignette, Jesus was tested in the wilderness. And whereas Adam failed the test in the garden, Jesus withstood the temptations of Satan. And then Jesus began his public ministry. And the heart of Jesus's message was revealed, which Josh preached on last week. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so in a few verses, expectations have been set. Something big is about to happen. And so far, these things have taken place in obscurity. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. But now it is time to make it known. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time for the revolution to begin and for the rightful king, the anointed one, the son of David to retake the throne. But that's not quite what happens next. The next vignette is not about Jesus assembling an army or riding into Rome on a war horse. In fact, nothing of national importance seems to be taking place. Jesus is simply walking alongside a lake a lake bustling with professional fishermen, referred to by Mark as the Sea of Galilee. It was a lake renowned for its many different species of fish. Today in America, we might value a cattle ranch or poultry farm more, but fish was the staple food of the Greco-Roman world. And this lake was the place to get them. There were at least 16 ports that we know about on the lake. And the fish from the Sea of Galilee were prized 
and exported as far as Alexandria and Egypt and Antioch and Syria. And so to survive as a fisherman in that busy market required one to be a shrewd and successful businessman. So Jesus is walking by as professional fishermen are doing their work. And he saw Simon and Andrew wading in the water trying to catch fish with a circle net. And he called out to them saying, follow me. And they immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. Jesus went a little farther and saw the sons of Zebedee sitting in a boat, mending their nets. And he called to them and they followed him too. Four fishermen stopped their work and followed Jesus because he called them to. There's something interesting about this to consider that we can't be sure, but it's likely that Andrew and Simon were in business with James and John. In fact, some scholars have suggested that Simon may have been married to one of Zebedee's daughters, and so it was a family business. It's known that Simon, who Jesus named Peter, was married, and his mother-in-law lived in Capernaum. Perhaps Simon, Peter's mother-in-law, was the mother of James and John, and she may have been the person named Salome, one of the women mentioned at the cross. Now, if the four of them were in business together, this turn of events would have been quite a disruption to Zebedee and his fishing business. Without warning, he lost his sons and business partners and was left sitting in the boat with his hired hands. The quickness of it all is puzzling. And can you imagine you're at work fishing for your boss and a rabbi comes walking by and says, follow me, and you're like, eh, okay, and toss your nets aside. I mean, it's, it's odd but remarkable. Now we know much more about who Jesus is than they did at the time. And knowing what we know about him, it's natural for us to read this passage and and simply see it as a testament to their faith and trust. He called them and they followed, simple as that. But as presented, it seems a bit foolish on their part to abandon their livelihood and follow a traveling rabbi. I mean, that's how to get suckered into a cult. Did they even look into his background? But remember that Mark is telling the story in his own way to emphasize certain details. He's not presenting an exact chronology of everything that happened. Mark is emphasizing Jesus's initiation in calling disciples and highlighting their response. But there's more to the story. This wasn't Simon and Andrew's first encounter with Jesus. In the first chapter of John's gospel, we learned that Andrew was just a fisherman. That He wasn't just a fisherman. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. And Andrew was with John the Baptist when John declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so curious about Jesus, Andrew asked him where he was staying, and Jesus invited him to follow him and see And so Andrew got his brother Simon, and they stayed with Jesus for a day, and they believed him to be the Christ. Now some time had passed, maybe a few days, maybe a few months. There's no way of knowing, but we know that time has passed because the passage before this one mentioned that John the Baptist had been arrested. Their first encounter with Jesus prepared the way for this moment when they were specifically recruited, chosen by Jesus, to be his disciples. 
which was an unusual thing for a rabbi to do. The rabbis did not summon students to follow them. It was the other way around. A student interested in entering rabbinical school had to take initiative and they'd have to pass examinations to prove their worthiness. But Jesus did not operate by the customs of the day. He is the one who issues the call to discipleship. And the call he issued is an unusual one. You know, rabbis taught the Torah, the Jewish tradition. And so a student's chief allegiance wasn't to a particular rabbi, but the whole tradition of teaching. But Jesus didn't say to the fishermen, come and learn Torah. He said, follow me. Learn from me. Later he said, I am the way. And he can say this because he has authority in himself as the Messiah. Other rabbis were pointing people to God's law, but Jesus pointed people to himself because he is God. And so we too should follow him. In fact, the word Christian means Christ follower. And that is what we are. We follow the person of Jesus. Other world religions are all about what you should do or not do. But Christianity is all about what Jesus has done. You know, the rest of the Bible helps us understand what Jesus did. He did not abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. And it's done. All that's left is to tell people the good news, which is what the word gospel means. The gospel is not good teaching or good philosophy. It's good news. These disciples were given the opportunity to witness firsthand the events of the gospel as they unfolded so that they could then tell the whole world. That's the second aspect of Jesus's call. The first step is follow me. But then he said, and I will make you become fishers of men. There's a job to do. The call to discipleship is also a call to service. But the phrase, fishers of men, is ominous. And think about it. What, what is it that fishers do? They capture fish and pull them out of their safe environment, sometimes with a net, other times with a hook in their mouth. And often a catch has fatal consequences for a fish. You know, life cannot go on as before. The Old Testament prophets used fishing imagery as a metaphor for gathering people several times, but on every occasion, the metaphor is one of judgment. For example, in Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord about how he intends to use Babylon as judgment upon Israel, he said of God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then speaking of Babylon, with the same metaphor, Habakkuk said, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And when Israel was caught like fish, it was a bad thing. But now Jesus is taking a familiar metaphor and turning it upside down. His disciples will be fishing for men, 
not to gather them for judgment, but to pull them out of the waters of judgment. People all around us are drowning in the waters of judgment and they have no idea. They might even be happy when they should be filled with grief and sorrow because they do not know God. They do not obey God. And yet they are accountable to God. The mission of a disciple is to rescue people out of the waters of judgment. And it is slow, but important work. We often don't do the work of a fisherman because we are afraid of hurting people's feelings. But ironically, telling people the gospel is the most loving thing you can do. This very concept was expressed beautifully by an atheist of all people, Pin Gillette of the comedy team, Pin and Teller put out a video on YouTube in 2009 where he talks about the time he was given a Bible as a gift from an audience member. He said that the man came up to him and complimented him on his show and said other nice things. And and then he said, "I, I brought this for you. And he handed him a pocket Bible with the Psalms and New Testament and and told him that he had written an inscription in it. He said, I'm, I'm kind of proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm saying I'm not crazy. And you can see the emotion in Penn's voice as he recounts this experience. And he said that it was really wonderful. That he believed that the man knew that he's an atheist. But he said the, the man wasn't defensive. And he truly felt that the man's kind words were genuine, not just flattery. And then Penn said something that I think every Christian ought to hear. Penn said that he's never respected people who don't proselytize. Because he said, if you truly believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think that it would not be worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. He then interrupted his thought as he thought about other atheists who say that they don't like it when people proselytize. But then he said, how much would you have to hate someone to believe that eternal life is possible and not tell them that? Then being gifted with words as he is, Penn gave an illustration saying, if I believe beyond a shadow of doubt that a truck was coming at you and, and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point when I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, sadly, that moment didn't lead Penn to the faith, but he recognized that that was a good man. And he was grateful enough to make a video to share his thoughts. You know, I recognize that whenever the topic of evangelism comes up, our natural response is to feel shame because we judge ourselves harshly. We, we think we're inadequate to the task which is exactly how Moses felt when the Lord called him to be his spokesman. And Moses tried to argue with God as if God didn't know exactly what he was doing by calling Moses. And it wasn't about Moses' ability anyway. God promised to tell him what to say. After all, he is the one who made the mouth. In much the same way, Jesus is the one who initiates discipleship. And if he has called you, he will equip you but it might not happen overnight. I mean, think again about the metaphor. Fishing is not a fast sport, but a slow one. 
It requires going to where the fish are and a whole lot of patience. And Jesus said to them, I will make you become fishers of men. It's a process. Reading through the gospel accounts, it seems that it took the disciples quite some time to understand the mission of Jesus. They spent day after day with Jesus, but it wasn't until the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that they truly got it. And then they went out and preached the good news of the gospel and God blessed their efforts. Something to keep in mind is that just as it was Jesus who initiates the call to discipleship by saying, follow me, it is Jesus who will prompt people to follow him through your words and actions. Your friendliness might be what changes someone's mind about Christians. Your invitation to church might be all that's needed. Your prayer for someone might be among the means God uses to fish someone out of the waters of judgment. I'm not encouraging you to go out and make someone your project and force a relationship for the sole purpose of converting them because that will only make them feel used, not loved. Rather, show the love of Christ consistently and slowly, day by day, to your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you live next to, the people you interact with regularly, the servers who already know your order because you eat there every week. Do they see your kindness in the way you treat them? If so, they might be more inclined to listen to you than you might think. And lastly, remember that it is good news. I mean, the message isn't try harder to be a better person so God will like you. Rather, it's God loves you so much that he sent his son to reconcile you to himself. But that's a good message. And there's more. God's son, Jesus, did it joyfully because he loves you enough to offer himself as a sacrifice for you. And he intercedes daily on your behalf. And he equips you to do the work of a disciple, the work of a fisher of men. The Holy Spirit is a gift for you to teach you what to say and help you navigate the trials of life. And it enables you to pray to God directly without a person serving as a mediator between you and God. And there's more good news than that. So let us be joyful to share the good news, to be joyful, fishers of men. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 